0: Hey everybody, Justin here. This episode of Holy Ghost Stories contains some content that falls into the category of sexual abuse. If that's particularly difficult for you, you might skip this story. Or if you've got younger ones in the car or in the room with you, you might listen to the episode first and then decide whether to share it with them. Just wanted to give you a heads up. What might you do if you were desperate? How far would you go? What boundaries would you cross? How frantically would you claw at the object of your desire? When we're cornered, treed, surrounded, all bets are off. This is not the realm of prudence, but of instinct, reflex, survival. This is a story about the lengths to which we'll go when desperation closes in. It's a story about fear and about courage, about legacy and selfishness and the shatterproof plans of God. And it's the kind of story that seems especially close to Yahweh's heart, where Eden is reversed and a woman deceives the serpent. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. won't be long now. She's been chosen, selected. Matched and dowried and now on her way to Khazib, Tamar is nervous, surely, but hopeful as well. She may be young, 13 or 14 years old most likely, but she knows what she wants, a family, a husband who makes her a mother, which gives her a legacy. A son means a place in history participation in a lineage, meaning, and a lifetime of love. And thanks to Judah, this is what she will have. As is the custom, Tamar has been chosen for Judah's firstborn son, heir by Judah himself. She watches Judah approaching her father's house, destiny in the making. As he walks, a signet ring swings in time with his gait, suspended from his neck by a beautiful cord. A shepherd's staff rests comfortably in his hand, the bend of the wood, the carvings, all unique, bespoke, instantly recognizable. Tamar greets him, nervous, excited. Er will love you, Judah tells her. Something like that, surely. And so Tamar beautiful and new and spilling with youthful expectancy, goes with Judah to be married to his son. Er lives with his father's family in Khazib, a small town near Adulam on the edge of the Canaanite hill country west of the Salt Sea, a village built on a hill with beautiful views of the valley of Elah below. Tamar arrives to find shady groves of caliprinos oaks, the hillsides speckled pink, white, and yellow by rock rose and thorny broom flowers. On morning walks, just as the sylvia warblers and golden crests have begun the day's singing, Tamar can spot ostriches and fallow deer grazing in the dale, even if she's quiet, the incredible white oryx its ivory body crested by the great dark V of its deadly scalloped horns. Perhaps, as Tamar explores her new home, she happens upon some of the caves. There are thousands here, the landscape pockmarked with recesses and tunnels worming their way beneath the town, untold secrets stashed in the darkness. But all of this discovery is eclipsed by a disturbing realization as the first days of Tamar's new marriage give way to weeks and months. Err is a terrible person, not a little selfish, not given to sporadic moments of short-temperedness, chronically, irrevocably evil. What is this like for young Tamar? This girl who expected love and found its opposite. Who made herself vulnerable, body and heart, and found herself wounded, inside and out. How does she bear the splintering of her soul? The choking fear that overwhelms her the first time her husband beats her? The second. What does she feel when she realizes she's lost count? Whether Err's selfishness manifests itself most often in violence, or gaslighting, or verbal abuse, or criminal business practices, or rampant infidelity, will be lost to history. But this will not. Err is a horrible man. And Tamar, her teenage heart bruised and blistered by the wickedness of her husband, wakes day after day to this nightmare crushed there is not even a child to distract her Tamar has still not become pregnant perhaps Er thinks beating her will improve her fertility if Tamar prays to the god of Jacob, Air's grandfather during these dark days she wonders, surely whether this god is listening wonders if he does hear her whether he will respond. She'll soon discover the answer is yes. Er is dead. Killed somehow because of his gross unrighteousness by Yahweh himself. A rare occurrence, this immediate death sentence. A testament to Er's wickedness. Tamar wakes to find him not breathing. Or perhaps it's more spectacular than that. Ers in the middle of a drunken bender, driven into a rage by Tamar's failure to serve him cheese fast enough. Screaming, he raises his hand to strike her when his arm is stayed and his skin begins to blister and blacken. Maybe it's a runaway horse that crashes into him on the street, or a sudden fever or an alleyway stabbing. However Yahweh does it, Yahweh does it air er is gone and Tamar well Tamar is free but it's more complicated than that in this part of the world at this time in the world the only way really to flourish as a woman is to marry and bear children your husband and eventually your children provide you with financial stability, standing in the community, your housing, your food, your medical care, your social network, it's all tied to your husband, your sons. Things are difficult for a widow, especially a childless one. Which is why Yahweh included in his covenant an age-old custom that would come to be known as leveret marriage. If a woman's husband dies before she bears a son, Her dead husband's closest brother is to take her as a wife and have a son with her, becoming a kinsman-redeemer. The son born of that union will be considered the son of the widow's late husband, continuing their family line, inheriting and sharing with his mother whatever was due the man she lost. It is an act of grace for the living brother to do this, and he is at liberty to refuse, but should he choose to do so, he must announce his refusal at the city gates and will be publicly known for his ungracious posture. So when Er dies, Judah, as patriarch, offers Er's younger brother Onan to Tamar, tells Onan, in fact, to do what is his duty and raise up offspring for Tamar and his dead brother. But with Er gone, Onan knows he's now the firstborn. The birthright, the blessing, the largest inheritance became his the moment his brother died. And it will now be passed to his children when he's gone. It's quite a windfall. Of course, if Onan gives Tamar a son in his brother's name, all of that disappears. But publicly renouncing his duty as kinsman-redeemer, well, that would greatly diminish his standing in the village. So what to do? Ah, Onan has a plan. Tamar goes in to Onan. Lamplight flickers on the waiting bed. And what is she thinking as Onan lies down with her? He is not Er, thankfully, but he is cut from the same cloth. She's seen that over these years, watched him interact with his family, with her. Not a miscreant, per se, but not a great man. Of course, he did agree to be with her, to give her a son. That much is laudable, certainly. And so perhaps Tamar is hopeful tonight. They begin. Tamar flinches perhaps at Onan's touch, a reflex. Does he reassure her? Does he even notice? Unlikely, Onan is not thinking about Tamar. They continue... And the moment comes, the reason for their union, the transfusion that will bestow Tamar with an heir, and Onan withdraws, spilling his seed on the ground. Confused, shocked, Tamar looks at him, her eyes demanding an explanation. And what does Onan say? Does he apologize, blame his nerves? Does he tell her tomorrow will be different? Tomorrow is not different. Once again, Onan begins, continues, has her, but then wastes his semen on the floor. He's toying with Tamar. And what can she do? How can she defend against this exploitation? A flurry of thoughts and counter-thoughts hurtle through Tamar's mind, weighing options and battling emotion and desperately trying to manage panic. Surely she tells Onan she's going to alert Judah to this violation? Does Onan threaten her? If you tell him, it'll be the last thing you do. Does he tell her this is a probationary period? If you perform well for a few weeks, give me what I want, I'll give you what you want. How many times does Onan deceive her, take from her, and refuse to give her what he has pledged? And what of Tamar's heart in all of this? After what she endured from Ur, and now this, this kind of abuse creates wounds, leaves scars. Tamar must feel profoundly alone. But she is not. Onan is dead. Killed somehow because of his gross unrighteousness by Yahweh himself. A rare occurrence, this immediate death sentence, a testament to Onan's wickedness. When Tamar's story is told by future generations, the exact manner of Onan's death is not disclosed. Does he die in the same way Err died? Or is it new? However Yahweh does it, Yahweh does it. Onan is gone. And Tamar, well, Tamar is free. But it's more complicated than that. Judah has one more son, his youngest, a boy named Shelah. He's not old enough to marry yet, but when he is, custom dictates that Shelah is to be given to Tamar as a husband now that her first two partners are gone. Judah, though, grieving the death of not one but two sons, balks at the prospect of pairing Tamar with his youngest. Only a fool would fail to recognize the pattern, first heir, then own one common denominator. His sons weren't perfect, sure, but did they deserve to die? And how did Tamar do it? Perhaps she's bad luck, cursed, bewitched. Or maybe she just responds sharply to mistreatment. But there was no evidence she killed them. It almost seems like someone, something is looking out for Tamar. And on the off chance that Shayla, when he's of age, will find himself on her bad side. Go back to your father's house, Judah tells Tamar. Be a widow there until my son grows up. Tamar wonders, surely, if this is a good faith promise or a sentence to limbo. When Tamar was in Judah's house, Did he ever speak of the past, of Joseph? Did he see his father Jacob in himself, recognize generational patterns, match blind spot to blind spot? Perhaps not. This is the nature of blind spots. But when Judah's sons died, When his youngest son's life was threatened, did Judah not feel a sudden empathy for his father Jacob, a new piercing compunction as his mind flashed back to the moment not so long ago when he, Judah, threw Joseph in the pit and bathed his coat in blood? Was the name Joseph forbidden in Judah's house? Did Tamar even know the story? What Tamar does know is that it's been years since she was sent away by her father-in-law. Years of waiting, years of wondering, years of going to the market and hearing the whispers. Hundreds, thousands maybe, of days waking up to quiet. No yawning husband, no crying or giggling baby. And certainly, after enough time, the pit-of-the-stomach assurance that Judah never intended to give Shelah to her. What does year after year of this do to a person? Resignation is one option, the slow and steady calcification of the heart, a deadening of the eyes, a vanquishing of the will, acceptance of grim fate. Or desperation. The slow and steady frenzying of the heart, a wilding of the eyes. The will becomes feral, fate ferociously defied. If these are the options, Tamar, years, decades into her predicament, seems to have found herself hip-deep in the rising waters of the latter. Shela is grown. There's been no word from Judah. She must do something. Make for herself a future, wrestle a blessing. Judah's wife is dead. The Canaanite girl Judah married when he left his father's home and journeyed northwest, the woman who bore him three sons, the companion and partner of his youth. She's gone, and Judah mourns. When a wife dies, a husband takes comfort in echoes left behind on the faces of her children. Those eyes, that chin, her smile. A familiar laugh becomes resurrection bliss, mercifully interrupting grief's monotony, a moment's return from the grave. What if the children you made together are dead too? Springtime. Blue lupins and yellow corn marigolds prick their way through the soil, marking the emergence of a new season. Judah takes his flock 10 miles or so northwest to Timnah, where the shearing festival is in full swing. Wine flows freely, old friends share meals, and offerings are made to the Canaanite gods, a plea for an abundant year. Along the roadway between Timnah and the neighboring Enaim, a fair number of women gather, availing themselves of the men in attendance who leave the day's festivities desiring some company. You can make a good bit of money before the shepherds leave town. These extracurricular goings-on may, in fact, be a part of the Canaanite worship rites. Generations from now, historians will speculate as to the commonness of temple prostitution. And it's here, in the midst of all of this, that Judah finds himself one evening, missing his wife, grieving his sons full of wine and the promise of the payoff from this year's wool. Judah sees a beautiful woman on the road and he's drawn to her. Tamar knows her rights. She's well aware of the customs. She can't help but be aware of them, thanks perhaps to her father, incessantly reminding her of the stipulation that if a man has no son over ten years of age, or if he's unwilling to offer the son he has, he can perform the Leveret obligation himself. If he does not, he can officially declare her a widow, freeing her to marry again. Judah must do one or the other, Tamar's father tells her surely. Keeping you trapped like this is not right. This is not news, of course, to Tamar. Why doesn't her father say these things to Judah? What's she supposed to do about... And then Tamar gets word that Judah's wife has died and that Judah is headed to Timnah to shear his sheep. The wheels begin to turn. Tamar stands by the side of the road, staring perhaps at her reflection in a puddle. It's strange, after all this time, to see herself in clothing other than her widow's garments. In these clothes, with this veil draped across her face, she looks like someone else. Someone who hasn't spent years mourning childlessness and lost futures. Someone beautiful, who's just looking to make some money. Perfect. Perfect. Come, let me take you back to my lodging," a voice says. It's him. It's working. How did Tamar know it would work? Any answer is unsettling. What will you give me for sleeping with me, she asks, the bustle of the street cloaking her voice just enough. Judah smiles. I will send you a young goat from my flock. Future payment just what she was hoping for. Only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you? Asks Judah. Tamar feigns an extemporaneous flare. Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. Significant collateral. Judah's identification, his financial credentials. But Judah is motivated. He hands them to her and they go in. Over the next while, Judah breathing heavily, their bodies braided in the darkness, Tamar feels what? Anger, fear, vengeful satisfaction, revulsion, sorrow, hope, more fear. What if he realizes who I am? Why did he leave me with no choice but this? He deserves everything I'm taking from him. This is not right. This is right. What if I don't get pregnant? What if I do? What if I do? Tamar finishes the task, victorious. Leaving Judah on the bed, she gets up and walks out of the room, takes off the veil as she strides down the road, and before she arrives home, puts her widow's clothing back on. Fate, ferociously defied. is she? Judah's friend and business partner Hira has brought the goat to Enayim to make payment for Judah's interlude, to retrieve Judah's signet ring and cord and staff. But Hira cannot find the woman he's looking for. This is the right spot. He knows it is. He eyes a group of men and approaches them. Where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Enayim? They look him up and down. There has been no cult prostitute here, one of them says. Frustrated, Hira returns to Khazib and tells Judah, I couldn't find her. Couldn't find her. She has my... Judah's stomach surely lurches with dread. Did you even ask? But Hira beats him to it. The men of the place said, There has been no cult prostitute here. How could that be true? I was with one. She, she had a veil. Judah's face moves from confusion to concern to resignation in a matter of moments. Fine. Let her keep my ring and my cord and my staff for herself. He shakes his head, imagining the social impact of a more public hunt for his misplaced personal effects. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. And then, considering his outstanding debt to the woman and rationalizing its non-payment, after all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. Hira agrees, and it's done. Or at least they think it is. About three months after his trip to Timnah, a messenger brings news to Judah. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar. Oh, Tamar. What about her? She has been acting like a prostitute. What? And now she is pregnant. What? Uh, How dare she lower herself to acting in a way that brings shame on this family, prostitution, and now there's a child. Doesn't she know that's what happens when you... She couldn't give air a child, couldn't conceive with Onan even though he gave her plenty of chances, but now she sleeps with some John and she's pregnant by him. Bring her out, Judah seethes, and have her burned to death Tamar walks calmly as she's led from her father's house. She does not look like a woman panicked by a violent death sentence. As she walks, a signet ring swings in time with her gait, suspended from her neck by a beautiful cord. A shepherd's staff rests comfortably in her hand, the bend of the wood, the carvings, all unique, bespoke instantly recognizable. When she arrives at Judah's house, Tamar presents the ring, the cord, and the staff to one of Judah's servants, or perhaps to his business partner, Hira. She looks directly at him and says, "'I am pregnant by the man who owns these.'" As he reaches to take the items, Tamar continues, "'See if you recognize whose these are.'" He examines them and his eyes widen when the ring and the cord and the staff are presented to judah his mind races trying to make sense of what's just happened it was her she i and the child the child is mine ours feelings of embarrassment regret, anger, hypocrisy, shame, a desire for revenge, swirl and swarm and steam inside of Judah. What will he do? He could take the items and have Tamar killed anyway, a convenient disposal of this woman who's been a thorn in his family's side for decades. He could deny her claims, say she must have gotten his things from another woman. He could abort the baby and send her back to her father's house to wither in oblivion. But he does none of these things. Instead, Judah changes. He wrestles the anger and the shame and makes way for something else that's been jockeying for position inside of him. Godly sorrow. And it leads him to repentance. With surrender on his face and tears in his eyes, Judah looks up from his signet ring and says simply, she is more righteous than I. If Hera objects, Judah silences him. No, I wouldn't give her to my son Sheila. It was not right. Exhausted, exonerated, Tamar smiles a tired, strong smile touches her belly, and walks out of the room. In the coming years, the secrets of Judah's fraternal history will be unearthed. dug up by famine and a journey to Egypt and a shocking moment with Pharaoh's second-in-command. But by the time Judah finds himself face to face with the sins of his past, he will look much different than he did when he committed them. He will protect the youngest of his brothers, he will lead the sons of Jacob with thoughtfulness and loving concern, and he will help to reunite his father with Joseph. A son Jacob thought he'd lost forever. And Tamar? Tamar, the woman who wanted so desperately to become a mother, will give birth, but not to a son, to twin sons. During the delivery, one will reach his hand out from the birth canal, as if declaring his intent to be first born. The midwife will mark him by tying a scarlet cord around his wrist, but her act will prove premature. The other baby will push his way past his brother, breaking out and claiming his place as the firstborn son of Tamar and Judah. They will call him Perez, the one who breaks through. And this family, this clan of secondborn or barely firstborn sons, This crew of widows, and infertile mothers, and adoptive fathers. This tribe of triers, and failers, Tamar, and Judah, and Perez, Salmon, and Rahab, and Boaz, and Ruth, David, and Bathsheba, and Hezekiah, and Joseph, and Mary. This will be how Yahweh brings the Christ, a brother who becomes a husband, and rescues his bride making her safe, giving her meaning, ensuring for her a lifetime of love. One day, Tamar will meet Yahweh face to face, the God she only saw in shadows and heard in echoes, the God of her flawed husbands, the one she wondered if she could trust. You liked the ostrich, he'll say to her, perhaps. I knew you would. If she cries as they remember together all that she endured, he will wipe the tears from her eyes. No more death. No more crying. No more pain. And the one on the throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Tamar's grandson, will welcome her home. Her kinsman, Bryntimur. Hey, Justin, one more time, thanks so much for listening. I hope you were blessed by the story of the Kinsman, the Widow, and the Mark, and I'd be so grateful if you shared it with a friend. This was one of the top two stories voted into Season 3 by patrons of the show. I was really surprised at the level of interest about this text, but that just goes to show what an interesting and thoughtful bunch of people Holy Ghost Stories patrons are. There were some fascinating details about the story of Tamar and Judah that didn't quite make it into the episode, and I'm going to be including those in this week's edition of the latest, along with some photos of the ruins of Kazib and its surroundings, and a mind-blowing video of a cave in this area, the same area, by the way, where David gathered his crew of fighters while on the run from Saul. It will forever change your mental picture of that story and others. The latest is free, and you can sign up at holyghoststories.org. Just click the link in the show notes. Oh, and I almost forgot, if you are a fan of Holy Ghost Stories, you are going to love what happens this Halloween. I know it's a ways off, but I cannot help letting you know that I am dead chuffed, as they say in England, about what's coming. I can't tell you quite yet, but you're going to love it, I promise. I'll be talking about it very soon in the latest, so make sure you're signed up for that. Finally, a quick and heartfelt shout out to the Tours, the folks supporting Holy Ghost Stories at the highest level of patronage. I'm so grateful for every single one of you who are patrons and tours. if patronage were the fight against the dark arts you'd be dumbledore's army cheyenne boo helen elizabeth scott and susan rick mindy maddie april eric and jody john ricky brandy kimmy steve patrick liz stevens terry jack Nelwyn, julie jamie steven bill and trina jessica ken Alyssa, sloan and jamie thank you i'm grateful to god for every one of you